0: Podcast features forthcoming authors, both professional and student, to be featured in the forum in our print publication, New England Law Boston Professors discussing their scholarship, as well as interviews
1: with the symposia guests. Welcome to another episode of the New England Law Review Podcast. My name is Brian Edmonds, online editor of the New England Law Review, and I am very excited to welcome our next guest. He is a law professor at Boston College, a former Supreme Court clerk, and an expert in both constitutional and corporate law. His work has been featured in The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Atlantic, and on CNN. He was also the keynote speaker of the New England Law Review's 2019 Fall Symposium. Here to discuss his book, Corporations Are People Too, And They Should Act Like It, is Professor Kent Greenfield. Professor, welcome. Thanks, Brian. It's a really a pleasure to be here. Well, we're very, very happy to have you. And before we dive into your book. Could you give our listeners a, a summary of your background and some information about the areas of laws that you focus your your studies?
0: Yeah. So I've been a law professor for almost 25 years now. And I came here from from uh, clerking. I, I, like you said, I, I was able to have the good fortune of clerking for David Souter on the Supreme Court. And I, after I, that clerkship, I, I thought, I really, I really want to be a law professor because that's that seems like the best job in the world. And I joined the faculty at BC and it's been have been there ever since. I, I think one of the things that uh, that has been different about me, I and mean, I, I think even by the the standards of law professors, I've been a little bit of an odd duck. But, um, in the sense that, for most of my career, I've been I've been working in and studying and thinking about and teaching corporate governance and constitutional law. And most professors do one or the other. That they are not that many of us who do both. And for most of my career, those two parts of my, uh, my my areas of interest didn't interact that much. But over the last 10 years, ever since C- Citizens United, which we'll talk about, uh, uh, you can't, I, in my view, you can't really know or do a, a good job or a fair job on, corp- on constitutional law unless you know something about corporate governance. And you can't really know about corporations unless you also know about constitutional law. So in a way, uh, last uh, these two areas of interest that were animating me for 15 last 10 years uh, have really come together.
1: Excellent. And and for for law students, I know it's it's really wonderful to have someone with such 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 incredible experiences between clerking on the Supreme Court and, and really teaching for a long period of time. You you have a a really really great amount of expertise that you could share. And I know as a student myself, we always appreciate when professors are able to bring such knowledge to the table because eventually that's what helps us become better lawyers. I hope so. Thank you. And your book that we're here to, to talk about today, Corporations Are People Too and They Should Act Like It, is focused on the the rights and responsibilities of corporations. Um, you you mentioned that corporate, corporate governance is sort of in your wheelhouse. Could you Tell our listeners how this particular topic came to be an area of interest for you.
0: When I graduated from college back in prehistoric days, I my first job out of college was at Levi Strauss and Company on San Francisco, the jeans manufacturer. And that company was, was run by a local San Francisco family uh, that had deep religious commitments, and deep connection to the community, and they ran their company in a way that I really respected. And it always struck me that even given their personal commitments, it was sometimes hard to translate those personal commitments into into a corporate setting, because they were that they were competing against other companies that didn't have those commitments. So it's, I think it's wonderful when a company has a commitment fest commitment to society to the environment to their employees there's only so much they can do absent absent the knowledge that everybody else is going to do the same thing there's there's a there's a level playing field problem that makes it difficult for a lot of things we want corporations to do it um, keeps them from doing it on their own so I became very interested in what the law should be to govern corporations so when I uh, I went to law school at the University of Chicago which is which is one of those places where where the study of law and economics is very sort of woven into every class, whether it's constitutional law or corporate law and you. And so, I, even though I didn't, I don't adhere um, to the uh, to many of the values of law and economics, I appreciate the tools that it provided me. So when I uh, got out into the, to the into the to the world and practiced for a while and clerks, I always kept it in the back of my mind that it would be interesting to. To do some work on corporate governance, and also I was, you know, like I said before, I've been always interested in the laws of the Constitution and the, the constitutional constraints that they have.
1: So, yeah. Now, one of the the keys to understanding what you write about in your book is understanding what you mean when you say that corporations are people too, and this and this brings about a, a very specific Supreme Court case. So. For our listeners who might uh, not be aware of what we're, we're talking about, what what does corporations or people mean within the context of, of your book?
0: Yeah. So this became a real topic of public debate and public attention in 2010 when the Supreme Court decided Citizens United versus FEC, which uh, I don't, maybe we'll go into more in depth in a few minutes, but the shorthand version of Citizens United is that the, the court recognized First amendment free speech rights of corporations to be the same as the free speech rights of, of natural persons of individuals so the shorthand way of talking about that for most people was that the court ruled that corporations are people so there was a there has been a broad gauged effort to oppose that case most uh, some studies show that as much as 70 or 80 percent of americans disagree with that case and even want constitution be amended to, to overturn the case and so when i say uh, so I, I take a a little bit of a contrary response uh, and i think this is you know when you write a book you try to like pinpoint where you're where you disagree from the conventional wisdom and i, and I hope i've done it here and what i mean that um when i say corporations are people too i mean in a couple of ways i mean it uh that corporations are indeed made up of people, employees, of, of customers, of stakeholders, other stakeholders, of investors. And I think that it is proper for corporate governance to take into account the interests of those people. And, I, and in fact, the, the law of corporate governance, I think it's flawed, is, is mistaken, when it focuses on shareholders only and, and, and disrespects and, and sets aside the interest of employees communities and the like so that's one way that I think corporations are people now, the, the other way in which I think corporations are people at least some of the time is with regard to constitutional rights I know we'll dive into that more in depth but again the shorthand version of that is that corporations ought to have at least some rights under the Constitution because there it's Those rights are necessary for the corporation to fulfill its social and institutional duty of creating wealth. Um, So economic rights, for example, in the Constitution, have got to flow to the corporation because if they didn't, no one would invest in them. And that would would hinder their ability to satisfy the the rights. The other reason why rights should flow to corporations is that sometimes it's really important for the protection of the right, not of the corporation, of the right, that those rights flow to corporations. Think about the New York Times. The New York Times is a for-profit, publicly traded company. Um, but I'm really happy the New York Times has First Amendment rights these days because if, it, if that
1: corporation not have First Amendment rights, then I think uh, we'd be worse off, not better off. So before we dive more in depth to what you write about in your book, going back to Citizens United, the case for just a moment, you, you mentioned the decision was was unpopular. What what do you think some of, or, or could you tell our listeners what some of the critics were saying back then and are saying today? Yeah,
0: absolutely. And I think a lot of these critiques are are correctly held and are and are persuasive. That, I mean, I think the biggest there there are two main critiques. One is that when the court thinks about limits on campaign spending. That the court sees as as a free speech problem that spending money limits on spending money are limits on speech. So a lot of people will again use shorthand to say money is not speech. The second critique is the critique I mentioned before that corporations are not people. And those are two shorthand ways to represent I think a more robust critique. But that's basically the shorthand. I think both of those critiques are. Uh, have flaws in them. I, I, money is not speech, obviously, uh, but but the limitation of the spending of money can have free speech impacts, I believe. So this is a more nuanced way of talking about it, which I, and I think people should should understand, but if the government stops you from, if, if the government, Brian, were to, to tell you that you couldn't contribute to uh, whoever your favorite group, you know, Planned Parenthood or the NRA, you would feel that that would be a limit on your speech rights if, if the government told me, you know, I, I contribute to the Sierra Club. Right? If the government told me that you can't, that I can't contribute to the Sierra Club, yeah, I would think that was a limit on my my speech. The problem with campaign finance, and, you know, and I and I I can uh, give money to presidential candidates. I'm a happen to be a supporter of Elizabeth Warren. I've paid, I've spent, you know, contributed to her campaign. Limits on that, and if the government told me you can't contribute, that I can't contribute to Elizabeth Warren's campaign, yeah, I would, you know, I really would would think that that was a, a limitation on my speech rights. I think the issue with, with campaign finance is that it's it's more complicated than that. There are, I think, there's a detriment to democracy when there's so much money being spent in campaigns, uh, when when some people, whether it be Tom Steyer or the Koch brothers or Sheldon Adelson, end up spending. Hundreds of millions of dollars to support their candidate, and in effect use a microphone and a megaphone, I should say, in the marketplace of ideas. I think that's not fair, and I think that's inconsistent with our broader uh, commitments to democracy. So I, I, you know, what I would say there is that yeah, money, money actually is speech at least some of the time, and but we have to be more sophisticated in how we talk about it in terms and in terms of the the critique of the United States saying that corporations are not, are not people. They should not have uh, the ability to, to pursue constitutional rights. I just, I, I think that that is true some of the times and false some of the times. I think you can't have a, have a bright line that says corporations should never raise constitutional uh, claims. Uh, so I think the hard thing as a scholar as a student of law, uh, that you have to be a little more sophisticated about which rights they should be able to claim, which rights they, they don't. And much of my book, so sort of the core of my book is trying to work through the rights articulated in the Constitution to figure out which ones should
1: flow to the to uh, corporations and which ones should not. and and I think what you just talked about, Professor, really demonstrates the nuances of the First Amendment and how, the, the phrase speech means so much more than just two people talking back and mm-hmm. forth. Now, as it relates to corporations and, and moving into your book, I think the big question on, on many people's minds is, should corporations have rights? That's sort of the big question mark that was on many people's minds once this case was decided. And it's a lot of what you address in your book.
0: Yeah. And it's been a question that the Supreme Court has been trying to figure out for over 200 years. This year is actually the 200th anniversary of of the the Dartmouth College v. Woodward case where the Supreme Court held that Dartmouth College as a corporation does have constitutional rights to oppose a a move by the state of New Hampshire to change its charter. And in that case, John Marshall said a weird thing. Like John Marshall, the famous Chief Justice, he said, uh, uh, Chief Justice John Marshall said, uh, well, you know, corporations are creatures of the state. So they get whatever rights the state, the state gives them. That's known as the concession theory, and a lot of people still hold that theory. I, I, I uh, think it's persuasive in some circumstances. So uh, Marshall says you get whatever rights the state gives them. And But he went on. and said, and they get whatever rights that are incidental to their very existence. So that's a, big, that's a big caveat, right? You get whatever is incidental to their very existence. So for the last 200 years, the question has been what rights are incidental to the very existence of corporations? And that's what I'm trying to figure out in this book. Here's my short answer. The rights that are, that are incidental to the very existence of corporations are the rights that are necessary for corporations to survive and fulfill their institutional role uh, to create wealth. And the rights um, that should flow because of the importance of the right, not the importance of the corporate obligation, uh, corporate um, institutional role. So, for example, um, one one of the one of the reasons why I think corporations should have free speech rights, at least some of the time, is that not because of the rights of corporations per se because i think the the corporations are differently situated with regard to the first amendment that human beings are because the first amendment i think in in much um in large part i think is about human beings autonomy and fulfillment you know i want to read robert frost not because it helps me think about politics but because i really feel Edified by when I and and get more in touch with my own emotions and the world around me by reading poetry. Poetry is not about a marketplace of ideas or or trying to get me to help me decide whether I'm going to vote for Elizabeth Warren or or Donald Trump. Um, So much of the reason we protect speech is because of what it does for humans, both good and in fact bad. And so corporations don't have that reason. Right, their autonomy—the autonomy basis for corporations to have speech rights—is less than than for you and for me. But having said that, what a corporation says or produces is actually important to human beings sometimes. Uh, you know, I'll use the New York Times example again. Uh, but it's not just that. Like I, New York Times has an interest in speaking uh, to fulfill its business role of selling newspapers, but also it's important for listeners in a democracy uh, to know, to have access to information like that. Uh, It's important for publishing companies to be able to publish not just treatises on government, but also uh, novels, and and it's important for uh, record companies to be able to sell records uh, because of the sounds that they they produce and the importance of those sounds to human beings. So, I think there's, um, you know, and there are other examples of, the, of that too. The Fourth Amendment, for example, uh, the right to be free of unreasonable searches and seizures, the right to require uh, government officers to have a warrant for their search, before they search um, uh, someone. Of course, those should flow to corporations, not only because they're important for corporations to be able to pursue their, their, uh, their interest in, in gathering wealth and, uh, and create wealth. Also for, for the interests of the human beings who are involved in corporations, you know I, I don't want the FBI to be able to search the servers at Google without a warrant because my stuff is, my search history is in, in those servers somewhere. your search history is in those servers somewhere. So uh, corporations ought to be able to assert the rights of, of the Fourth Amendment in order to protect the, 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 what, what's important about the right.
1: And I think one of the most interesting things about your Fourth Amendment example is that that, that right not only protects the corporation, but has an impact, like you said, on, on us, the, the citizens as well, the, the people who have a connection to a right. lot of these corporations. Right. I, I know that there's a there's a constitutional law concept that uh, law students, many of them dread because it's very complicated. It's a, it's a concept that stresses them out in their first year constitutional law class, and that's the, the topic of fundamental rights. And for me, one of the most interesting parts of your book was your discussion about corporations mm-hmm. and fundamental rights. How do these fundamental rights that every law student at the end of their first year has had some exposure <laughs> right. to? How how do these fundamental rights relate to the rights of a corporation? Yeah, I, I love teaching about fundamental rights in my
0: introductory common law class because it's one of those it's one of those areas where. Everybody thinks that there's some some rights that aren't explicitly listed in the document. Everybody, nobody thinks that the only rights that we have are the ones that are explicitly in the text. Um, and nobody thinks that rights are, are infinite. Like, you, you get whatever rights that the, that the, that a judge thinks that is a good idea as a matter of policy. So there's some kind of place in there, and the court has long thought that, you know, well, there's some kind of, there's a, there's a uh, the courts oft, often reference history, like what has history protected over time, what what rights have been protected over time in our history, and then the importance, like what rights are really important. So here, you know, so in the U.S., that list of rights is pretty small. It's it's about autonomy of body, it's about um, it's about you know, the right to raise your children, make choices about your children, the right to uh, make choices about who you marry, the rights to um, to, know, to, to decide whether you're going to be pregnant or a parent, uh, become a parent or not. So it's a pretty small group of rights. But why in the world would, uh, would corporations be relevant with regard to the right to marry or the right to uh, uh, terminate a pregnancy or the right to bodily body autonomy? Because, you know, corporations don't have bodies. They don't get married. They, they, don't, um, they don't have babies. But here's why. Like, again, so for instrumental reasons. I I remind um, my students when we read the the 1992 case of Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which is is the case that uh, reaffirmed the court holdings of of Roe. Um, Everybody thought that the court was going to overturn Roe v. Wade in this case in 1992. As it turns out, the court saved it, at least the the skeletal structure of it. Uh, That was brought by Planned Parenthood of Pennsylvania, Inc., was a corporation organized as a corporation how they were a nonprofit corporation so it wouldn't so it doesn't necessarily show that you would have a, um, a, a for-profit company to uh, that would have fundamental rights but the notion that a corporation might be able to bring up a, a claim of fundamental rights on behalf of their customers their clients their patients makes complete sense uh, and in fact, there's there's nothing in that notion that would bar it from from being something that a for-profit company could raise. And here's an example. Let's say that a state um, uh, actually this is a real case. you know like, like let's say if Texas a few years ago in uh, um, whole women's health, Kate's called Whole women's Health, limited abortion clinics by uh, by implementing a whole host of regulations that made it very difficult to get an abortion those clinics that sued, Whole Wellness Health was a clinic that sued. Those clinics um, were corporate forms, were, were organized in corporate forms. And I don't know this for, for sure, but I think some of the clinics were for-profit clinics. For, you know, uh, and, and certainly there's nothing inherent in the, in the nature of the claim that would bar a for-profit company. from Here's another example. Let's um, let's let's say that there's a state that that passes a law saying that no business can sell a wedding cake to a same-sex couple getting married, uh, and a and a bakery wants uh, to sell a wedding cake to a same-sex couple to help them celebrate their their marriage. That bakery would have a fundamental rights claim, in my view, against the state for stopping them from from um, from participating in a in a same-sex union, um, so I, I think those are some examples. I I, I do think that um, you know there are some difficult cases, especially with regard to religion, and whether corporations have religious claims. But even there, I think it's possible. I just think it's it's um, uh, they're going to be rare.
1: And I think some of what you just said to me brought me back to my own con law studies and um, reminded me about. The issues of standing and how the the court has considered the impacts that uh, constituents and, and people within a corporation or a company or an organization uh, impact the ability to bring a claim. And, yeah, that sounds right. And I think um,
0: you were listening when you
1: I, I I did my best. Now, you know that those fundamental rights are, are something that are really um, can be very challenging. Uh, and I think that you. Really eloquently described the impact of corporations and, and the way corporations can have it. But the topic, when it comes to corporations, that most people that we we already discussed it a little bit in, in the speech. Yeah. How specifically does your book tackle this topic of corporate speech?
0: Yeah, so I, I think it's a I think it's complicated, and it doesn't really fit on a bumper sticker, right? right. Uh, and so this is one, one of the reasons why I enjoy. Things like this where you can where I can sit and talk and the that's imposing uh, here in New England the School of Law. I I think the shorthand answer to this is that the, the the corporations can be a player in the marketplace of ideas in the public debate. I think there are some limits that that uh, the government can place on, on corporate speech that they wouldn't be able to place on you or me. And most notably, I think it's completely proper for, corpor- for governments to place an obligation of truthfulness on corporations, whether they're talking about uh, political matters or commercial matters. Because I think corporations, they are inherently economic actors. And if you don't have an obligation of truthfulness that is, uh, that is consistent across the board in all of our communications, they, there's an incentive embedded in the form of the company that they will lie or to get a, to, to exact market uh, advantages. And so, just like we have anti fraud law and securities and consumer um, sales and the like, I think we, we can also impose an obligation of truthfulness on corporations when they engage in political speech. I, I, I do think that that's one difference. Uh, I, I think where it comes to Campaign finance is also an area where there could be adjustments in the current doctrine. But let me just say, I think campaign finance is uh, the cases about campaign finance uh, that that uh, says that First Amendment is uh, requires unlimited spending by human beings or corporations. I think that's I think that's wrongheaded. I think there should be caps on money in on spending of money in political campaigns. But those, my preference would be, both as a constitutional scholar and as a policy matter, uh, that those that those caps are applied both to human beings and to corporations. I mean, the big spenders in the last you know, two presidential cycles were, were were natural human beings and unions, not corporations. Corporations did not play a major role in the presidential cycles in two thousand twelve or in two thousand sixteen. They really just uh, they stayed on the sideline, and for you know, and for and. and once you think about it, it's obvious why they would be because corporations have to look in the long-term, they have to look, um, uh, they have to be more pluralistic than, than campaigns are intended to be or, in, um, or tend to be in our polarized po- politics these days. So it, uh, it, it's not in a corporation's best interest usually to be identified with one candidate or the other. So I, I think that the real danger in American politics is not corporate money.
1: The real danger in politics is
0: money, wherever it comes from.
1: Now, I think I, I remember when I, the first time I saw the cover of your book, it reads, corporations are people too, parentheses, and they should act like it. I, I walked by and it immediately it caught my eye because it's a very, it's, it's, it's a design that okay. catches people's right. eye. And the, and they should act like it, at first glance to me, that that implies a sense of Corporate responsibility. Mm-hmm. Could you tell our listeners um, any thoughts you have about corporations exercising these constitutional rights, and a se- any sense of responsibility that that um, they have with those rights?
0: Yes, I, I think the shorthand way to talk about that part of the book, which is basically the last three of the book, is that if corporations are going to be citizens, and they sh- they should act like citizens, and they should act consistent with with an obligation of, uh, toward society in general their, and their other stakeholders. But let me expand on that a little bit. And this is where my corporate governance comes into play. I, I do think that as a matter of constitutional law, it's hard to draw the line where so many people on the ideological left want to draw the line, which is that you want to draw the line that no corporation should have any constitutional right at all. I think that's a that's just an, an unworkable line, and what that does in effect is create this the potential where corporations are in a in a um, in a in a bad cycle. They have constitutional rights to engage in politics. They engage in politics to to um, to exact market advantages by way of legislation and, and regulation, and then those market advantages. Feed their political power because pl- political power includes the spending of money. It's a bad cycle. And the problem with that cycle is that under current law and, and consistent with the norms of governance and corporations in America these days is that those benefits are corporations are organized to provide benefits to shareholders and shareholders alone. You can serve the interest of employees and communities, if in the long run the management thinks that that will order to the benefit of shareholders but when push comes to shove is there, if there's tension between what a shareholder shareholders um what's good for shareholders or what's good for another stakeholder employees for example uh, the the management believes that they've got to further the interest of shareholders so that cycle i just talked about where you use politics to to exact uh, market advantages within regulation, or certain, et cetera, et cetera, that is in the service of shareholder value. And share, you know, in America today, shareholders are mostly the rich. I mean, we, we all, you know, some of us still may have retirement funds, but, um, but most
1: capital in America is owned by the very rich. So, if corporations want to to exercise these rights and, and gain support as persons. You mentioned earlier that Citizens United is considered an unpopular, I think you said about 70% of people are, are opposed to it. What do you think corporations can, can do to to be responsible and, and to earn the public's trust and, and maybe change that trend?
0: Yeah, so I I think it, it, I'm, I want to circle back to one of the things I said at the very beginning of this podcast when I was working at the restaurant house. And I could see the positive aspects of, of a company that intended and wanted to be a good actor. But there was impediment. There were impediments to that because everybody, their competitors, weren't. So I do think that that the law comes into play here. That the law should require, at least allow, and probably require corporations to be more broad gauged in their fiduciary duties, incorporate the uh, include is a better word, uh, include the interest of, of employees and the community in their internal decision making, and that's one. And so I think that that is something that will cause corporations to be better citizens in the in in the in the public minded sense and i think it will make them more like humans not less and this is the tagline of the book you know corporations are people too and they should act like it what i mean by that is this you brian uh, and i can't like we are human beings with a multitude of obligations you know i'm a father I'm husband, I'm a friend, I'm a son, I'm a brother, I'm also a scholar, I'm also a professor, um, you know, also um, involved in my community in various ways, and I, I, all of those responsibilities are important, and as a human being, I have to do them all well. Uh, I can't say to my job, I'm, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do poorly at my job consistently because I'm a parent, or I can't, as a parent, say I want to be a horrible parent because I've got a job. You've got to do both well. Now, there are going to be days when you're a better parent than others. You're going to be days when you're a better scholar, a better professor than others. Um, But over time, you've got to do everything well. Now, in America, in the United States, corporations are asked to do one thing, and that's to serve shareholder value. And I think that's wrong-headed. Corporations and their management ought to have a multitude of obligations. They should care about their employees. They should care about um, the environment. They should care about their communities. They should care about their consumers. Uh, And they've got to do it all well. And to ask them to to pursue only one thing is ask them to act like a robot, um, or no worse than a robot. Um, and, and, And so I think they should be more like people and have a more robust setup.
1: Are there any companies that you can think of who seem to be taking some of those steps and maybe serving as a leader in the corporate field to act more like a person and focus less on um, pure shareholder value or anything like that?
0: Well, I do think there are, are, are a few. And, and I will say that uh, uh, there was a letter released about a month ago now from 150 CEOs, the Business the Business Roundtable. It uh, said that corporations ought to be more engaged and more, ought to have a more robust set of obligations. And in fact, the letter said that we should should knock shareholder value down the list pretty far, uh, that the number one obligation of corporation should be to consumers, their customers over time. Uh, and other leaders here, you know, BlackRock, the uh, largest hedge fund in the world, re- re- led by Larry Fink, is increasingly pushing um, companies in which they invest to think more broad gauged about um, their obligations. But I do think that that um, there's a to use an economics term, there's a first mover problem here. That companies are going to be scared uh, that if they move, they're the first mover uh, and, and take into account the interests of society or their employers or consumers in ways that their competitors don't, that they will, that they will suffer a short-term and perhaps long-term economic harm. Because Wall Street will punish them. And Wall Street has immense power in the the way that we organize our economy Uh, and if and if the wall street and if wall street believes that a company is not not listening to wall street enough then wall street is going to punish that company so you have to have laws in order to make sure that companies all uh face the same same set of obligations so i i think that um, you know voluntary action by companies i applaud i uh, i think they should be rewarded but we can't expect that that's going to be the solution. You have to have, you know, I'm a lawyer. Uh, You're going to be a lawyer. Uh, Law is powerful, and I think law is necessary.
1: And that sort of the the change in the law will be the first step to make this sort of vision happen.
0: Absolutely. You know, and I think this is, we're in a moment in politics where this is actually a real possibility, more so than any time in my career. In, In the sense that, we have seen, as a nation, um, what it looks like when corporations run amok. We had a global financial crisis ten years ago. Now, uh, we and we we now know what it looks like for government to be beholden to to corporations. In my view, and this is a little far afield. My, in my view, I think this the president that we, that we have now is basically running um, a government, presidency for his own personal profit. So we know what corruption, corporate corruption and governmental corruption looks like. And I think people are are open to hearing different ways to organize economic life. Two of them leading presidential candidates on the Democratic side have have proposed major restructuring of corporate governance, including employees on boards of directors and broader fiduciary duties. And I think the fact that, uh, uh, that's Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, now, these are people who have, you know, if you put their, their percentages together, are clearly out in front of the, the field. And these, these proposals of, of adding responsibility to companies is part of the reason why they're popular, not a reason why they're, why they, it's not a drag on their campaigns. So I, I anticipate uh, this being a topic of conversation in the, in the fairly near future.
1: And I, I will say, I, I enjoyed reading your book to prepare for this podcast. And um, I, I think it's something that a lot of our listeners could really benefit from taking the time to read it. It's something that's not like a, not like a typical law school textbook, but I think we both know how busy law students can be. <laughs> right. So is there anything you want to tell our listeners about maybe why they should take, some, take a moment to read this book that we haven't touched upon?
0: Yeah, uh, it's an excellent stocking stuffer. I know uh, holidays are coming up, so uh, uh, buy by one for all members of your family. But I, I think that this is, this book is is important because no matter what kind of law you're going to do, if you're going to be an environmentalist, if you're going to be uh, an immigration attorney, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to be a straightforward corporate attorney, corporate governance and the rights of corporations are everywhere in all of these. It touches on all of these areas that we will be practicing. Most, you know, um, many First Amendment claims these days, as many as much as half. All First Amendment claims are, are brought by corporations now. So if you, uh, so you, I, I think it's malpractice uh, if you're going to be a corporate lawyer uh, if you don't know about the uh, First Amendment. It's it's malpractice if you're an environmental lawyer and don't understand the corporate uh, the obligations of the corporations within our current uh, legal framework. Um, and, and on and on. So I, I think that this is this is one of those. I hope this is one of those books that um, will be relevant to your practice, to your life, to your thinking,
1: um,
0: that regardless of what area of law you want to go
1: into. Fantastic. And finally, before we sort of wrap things up, do you have any upcoming projects that you can talk about that you might want to give our listeners a sneak peek about?
0: Uh, thanks, Brian. I, so I, I've been really, I've, I've been working with a friend of mine uh, uh, who's a professor at, at um, Cal Berkeley about the question of how do we, incentivize current decision makers to think about the future whether it's corporate decision makers or 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 public policy uh, experts or or public servants how do we incentivize people to think now about something that's going to happen 10 years from now and part of that uh, that's a real puzzle like whether whether you're thinking about uh, how do we incentivize the the officials at the t to to do the work on the t now so that the Snowstorm that comes in 2025 doesn't doesn't um, put us all into into gridlock. Uh, How do you think? How do you ask corporate executives who are developing, you know, um, a drug now to think about the lives that could be saved 10 years from now? So I think those are some puzzles that would be uh, fun to think about.
1: Fantastic. And if one of our listeners wanted to contact you to discuss your book or talk about any other issues that we talked about today, how might they do that?
0: I'd be delighted. They can they can contact me through my email at bc. I'm easily easily Googleable. Uh, I've got a website uh, kentgreenfield.com that that will point people to some of my some of my work, some of my my media appearances and the like. But I, I'm I'd be delighted to hear from any listener.
1: Excellent, and Professor Greenfield, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to sit down and talk with us. Um, we loved having you at our symposium. And if any of our listeners are interested in coming onto this podcast as a guest, or if you have suggestions for future guests, please feel free to reach out to us. And you can do that by emailing forum at NESL.edu. That's forum, F-O-R-U-M at N E S L Edu. Thank you so much for listening and have a great rest of your day.